Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your apocalyptic robots speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about the first volume of the comic book series Descender, which is written by Jeff Lemire with art by Dustin Wynn. This volume is titled Tin Stars. It was published in 2015. Jeff Lemire has written a lot of comics, including Animal Man, a bunch of different X-Men titles, even some Batman, uh, also some John Constantine work. I didn't read Descender when it first came out, but I remember seeing the glowing reviews, and uh, I'll tip my hand early here and say that uh, I think they were well-deserved, and I'm, I'm very glad to have read this book. That said, this is going to go a little differently than when we covered our first comic book, that first volume of Powers by Brian Michael Bendis, which we did a few months ago, and that's because this is not a complete story. It's it's chapter one in a, a longer novel, really, and, and so it ends on a game-changer to make us hungry for the the next installment. So this will likely be a shorter than usual review, but after last month's longer than usual episode, I think that will be something of a of a refresher. So okay then, let's just jump straight into Descender, Tin Stars. The name Tin Stars probably gives it away already, but Descender is a sci-fi story. We're in space and we're dealing with an interstellar civilization that doesn't include Earth, but does include humans who colonized another planet from Earth a really, really long time ago. There are nine core planets that make up the United Galactic Council, or UGC as our characters call it, and they're inhabited by humanoid aliens, uh, some of whom are quite interesting. They look very cool, and, and we'll meet a few of them in this volume. Mostly, though, Descender is about robots. The, the story begins with a prologue, ten years prior to the main story, we're on the capital planet, Narada, when a giant spacefaring robot shows up, won't answer hails, and then devastates the planet with a laser attack. And here we're introduced to some important characters. Most important of them is Dr. Kwan, who recently made massive advancements in robotics. I mean, really revolutionizing what robots were capable of. And he's brought in by the leader of the council as a robotics expert, but he's unable to figure out anything to do before the attack begins. And so that's the prologue. So we cut now to the present of this story. It turns out that there was one of these giant robots for each of the core planets. And while they didn't succeed in destroying all humanoid life, they seem to have wiped out about 80% of it. The survivors call these robots harvesters, and they responded to this catastrophe by destroying all their own robots in case the harvesters did something to reprogram them or simply out of fear and hatred of robots. And it's a lot like I imagine the Butlerian Jihad from Dune. Okay, so that's the setup. That's the setting of this story. So let's meet our protagonist. Tim 21 is a robot. In appearance and behavior, he's a boy of perhaps nine, and the Tim series was designed by Dr. Kwan to serve as companions and, and helpers to boys of this age. The story begins when Tim 21 wakes up 10 years after the events of the prologue, and he's confused about where his mother and Andy are. These are the, the family he lives with. He's on a mining colony on some small satellite somewhere, some small moon someplace, and he quickly realizes that everyone is dead. There are bodies everywhere, killed by harvesters, except not the bodies of his family. And so Tim 21 is hopeful. And I'll note here, because I'm not really going to talk very much about this character, uh, that Tim 21 also has a robot dog who is called Bandit. He's absolutely delightful. 
All right. So when Tim 21 wakes up and, and reactivates is really how we would think of it, he automatically sends out a signal that is detected by various powerful organizations that want him. First are the remnants of the UGC on Narada, who requisition Dr. Kwan and take him to this colony. And of course, he's got some handlers, and, and these characters are great. One of them is the half-human daughter of the leader of the UGC, and we learned that her mother died during the Harvester attack. She tells Kwan that the reason they're bringing him along is that they've recently discovered that the root program in the Harvesters is the same as the root program in Kwan's own Tim Series robots. That somehow the genocidal monster robots and the cute little boy robots share the same root program, a program written by Dr. Kwan. But how can that possibly be? Well, we'll find out a little later. Now, these are the good guys, or really, they aren't the worst bad guys, at least. And those are the scrappers, people who fly around space looking for robots that still haven't been destroyed and harvest their parts. One such band of scrappers gets to Tim 21 first, before the good guys, and Tim has to run from them, doing some real heroics to save himself and also to save Bandit. But ultimately, they, they end up requiring the help of a mining robot that is still active, who calls himself Driller and maybe isn't all that smart, but, but fiercely defends his, his robot comrades. But nonetheless, Tim 21 is severely damaged by the scrappers, and it takes the arrival of Dr. Kwan and his handler. Her, her name's Captain Telsa, by the way. So it takes the arrival of Dr. Kwan and, and Captain Telsa to get Tim 21, Bandit, and also Driller off of this moon. While he's out of commission again, Tim 21 dreams that he's on another planet, descending into a cave that is the, the mouth of one of the giant harvester robots. What's more here in this dream, he's being guided by a robot who was destroyed in the aftermath of the attack. And it seems maybe a little bit like this is supposed to be robot heaven. On board their ship, Dr. Kwan repairs Tim 21. And when Tim tells him about this dream, Kwan pronounces that, of course, robots can't dream. So here's another mystery. And this one's not going to be solved in this volume, but it's really quite fascinating. And I, I think we can see where this is going, that this is not going to be a dream. Okay, so just as it looks like they're going to get back to Narada and solve the mystery of the Harvesters program and everything's going to be awesome, the ship is attacked by the Scrappers. The Scrappers capture everyone, and they're going to take them to a planet called Gnish, whose uh, king is at the center of the anti-robot movement and has claimed independence since the attack, right? He's no longer a part of the UGC and when we get there, we meet the Nishian king. The Nishians, by the way, look a lot like pigs, and I think they take more than a little inspiration from Star Trek's Tellurides. Uh, they, they look great. They look really awesome. The Nishian king knows all about the connection between the Timbots and the Harvesters already, and he's delighted that the person who invented modern robotics is now in his possession. So as the Nishian king is torturing Quan, he cuts off his forearm, I should say, and it's really quite gruesome. So as Quan's being tortured, he confesses that he really doesn't know anything about the robots he invented because he stole that technology, even though he marketed it as his own. And now we get a really cool, really fascinating backstory about Quan and, and where this robot technology actually comes from. When Quan was a grad student studying robotics, he went with his advisor when the advisor was asked to come to an archaeological excavation on the planet Ostrakhan. Ostrakhan is entirely devoid of life now, but millions of years ago, there was a native civilization that hadn't developed space travel. And so this is something of a playground for scholars. 
This particular team has found something truly amazing, very deep underground. I mean, much deeper than any of the Ostraconian sites previously discovered. And it's the burial chamber of a damaged robot, millions of years old. Quan's advisor took the robot, and aboard their ship, they booted it up. And it said some strange, decontextualized things like, You were warned, and now you will burn. Oh, it's been millions of years since I was turned off. But you've done it again. Oh, no. And if they see me, they'll come again. I'll die. You get the picture. This business with the harvesters has happened before, and this galactic civilization has done the same thing that precipitated it. And so it's going to happen again. And of course, it actually has. Now, Quan's advisor wisely decided that they should maybe shut this robot off again until they know what they're dealing with. So Quan stole the data that they'd acquired from their computer that they'd plugged the robot into, and he used that data to go build his own super advanced robots. And that's where we are now. And this is a revelation that's as exciting for our characters as it is for us, the readers. But before anyone can really act on this new information, the torture room is invaded by a bunch of armed robots. They're the hardwire, the underground robot resistance, and they're here to save Tim-21. And they also have with them another Tim-bot, Tim-22. And that's how this story closes. Now, as I said at the top of the show, this is really just a prologue and, and one act of a story. It's not a complete arc, but I think we can still identify some themes and motifs and, and talk about what Lemire and Wynn are doing with them so far. The first thing I want to do is point out the Lovecraftian horror elements of what otherwise has all the trappings of a romantic space adventure a la Star Wars. There is certainly a massive cosmic horror backdrop to this story in the form of the Harvesters, who are a malevolent force that's just lurking somewhere in the deep unknown of outer space. They're definitely robots, but they may as well be great old ones. And of course, the really terrifying questions are, who made them? Where did they come from? And what are they up to? As we talk about all the time on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, it's the unknown that is the core element of cosmic horror. It's one thing to know all about the various things that might kill you, but it's something else entirely to worry that there are all sorts of hidden things that might be trying to kill you that you can't see, that you can't even comprehend. And we don't know the answers to any of the questions about the harvesters. We don't even really have any idea, and and that's what makes cosmic horror so horrifying. There's another strong element of Lovecraftian horror here, which is the the quest for hidden knowledge. Lovecraft, M.R. James, Poe, basically everyone we read over on Elder Sign, they all tell stories in this vein in which a scholar goes looking for something that really shouldn't be found. And when they find it, whether it's a cursed mummy, an old ghost, or a millennia-old civilization of alien colonizers, it means death or insanity for the protagonist, if not for all humanity. And we get that here with this dig on Ostracon, which unearths technology that is the catalyst for the arrival of the Harvesters. Now, it's not clear yet if the act of turning on this alien robot was enough to bring the Harvesters down on the UGC, or if this has happened because Dr. Kwan has taken this technology and proliferated it, thus drawing their attention. But in either case, Dr. Kwan makes for a fascinating mad scientist character. He's playing with forces he shouldn't. But in this case, they are also forces he doesn't understand, and he isn't really motivated by a quest for knowledge, uh, though his advisor and also the archaeologist who discovered the alien robot certainly were, right? They were real scholars. 
But rather, Quan is motivated by greed and a real lust for fame. He doesn't actually want to discover cool robotic stuff. He just wants people to think that he has. There's definitely some Gaius Baltar here, I think. And speaking of Battlestar Galactica, there is a lot going on here with the question of whether robots are people. Dr. Kwan, despite his other flaws, actually thinks of Tim-21 as a he rather than an it, and he's even chastised for that by Captain Telsa. And Lemire dials the anti-robot fervor up to 11 as well, with a horrifying aspect to this on Nish in the form of robot gladiator fights uh, and also a lava pit. And the image is clear, right? Robots are something akin to ancient slaves, and perhaps even something akin to ancient Christians being persecuted by the Roman state. And we're meant to be horrified by this. The the Nishians are clearly the bad guys here, and when the hardwire shows up at the end, we're meant to cheer. In fact, I I think we're even meant to slow clap in this moment. We sympathize and and even empathize with Tim 21, and Lemire uses some awesome cutscenes to show us the story of his production, his training, and his life with the family who purchased him. And we see how, at first, he's a commodity, something part toy and part tool that the adults in this family have purchased for their son. But by the time Tim 21 has been there for a year, he is really seen as a member of the family. He's seen as a person and he's told that he should call the matron of the house, mommy. And of course the first words that we hear Tim 21 say are mommy and Andy, right? He's looking for his family. Now this is all heartstrings here. We don't get any sophisticated arguments about how we can tell if these machines are people or what criteria we should use to establish personhood. But as I've said, this is just the early act of a much larger story, and I expect that we'll get some of that eventually. And of course, we've talked about this a lot on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Wolfe was a mechanical engineer who was also very concerned about salvation, and so this question is at the core of his work. And if you aren't already listening to that show and you are interested in these types of questions and in these types of stories— then I really recommend jumping into Wolf's novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I mean, it's a masterpiece. But if you're saturated with novels already, you can just check out his short story, Slaves of Silver, which is an amazing story about robots that is also a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Well, let's move into talking about the strengths and the weaknesses of this book. I think that the lack of sophistication about this question concerning personhood is a real weakness of this story, at least so far, though I do enjoy the heartstrings, so it's not really a complaint that I have. And for the most part, I thought this was a strong book. For me, the biggest weakness was actually the world building. There are a lot of characters telling each other stuff that's really for the audience. I always find that type of exposition really jarring, especially in writing. I don't mind it quite so much on TV, I guess, but it does show up a lot in comics. It's really one of the features of the medium. And writers who can work around this, uh, people like Brian Michael Bendis, are rare and and really special. So this too is not that much of a complaint. Or maybe I should say it's, it's not an obstacle to my enjoyment of the book. And on the other side of the coin, right, the book does some great things that harness the potential of comics as a medium. I mean, the art is gorgeous. I don't have any artistic training or, or vocabulary, but I guess I would describe it as looking like watercolor. And the the weak brushstroke, the thinness of the colors, I think these create a real lived-in look. But I also like how this technique emphasizes the foreground rather than the background. So we're really focused on the characters more than the world. And I think that's a really great move in a story that's going to hinge on sympathizing with a machine. 
And that's really all I wanted to say about strengths and weaknesses of the book, but something that Brent and I do on Hanging Out with the Dream King, where we are still working our way through the Sandman, is pick a favorite panel. And I would like to do that here, too. This is a really difficult task, though, with over 100 pages of absolutely stunning art to choose from. But I think the image that strikes me the most is in Chapter 2, when Tim 21 has fled deep into the mining caves and discovers the corpses of some miners, probably people he knows. The color palette here is all gray and white, except for Tim 21's spacesuit, which has some orange in it. And Tim 21 is kneeling over one of the bodies as if he's hoping to discover that the person inside the crumpled spacesuit is really alive. There is no text at all in this panel, but we can feel Tim 21's loneliness and his fear, his helplessness, and his sense of loss. We can just tell that he misses his mom, that he needs her to protect him from the bad guys. But he also knows that she's dead, and this hurts him. It's a gorgeous panel. It is an emotionally rich and evocative panel, and I just love it. And there are some great covers, too, though I think the best is for issue one, which is now also the cover of this whole first volume. This is Tim 21 with his robot attributes emphasized, but for all that, still looking very much like a real boy. And he has his head outlined against a full moon while he's looking up to the stars. And I have to say that the way the full moon is drawn looks very much like a halo in in Byzantine or Romanesque art. And I don't think that there's any accident that this image has religious and specifically Christian iconography. It seems likely to me that Tim 21 is going to turn out to be something of a savior figure, right? He's going to save the galaxy from the harvesters and probably usher in a new era of harmony between sentient robots and biological people. But that's just a guess. But I think all of that is implied here in this cover image. Before we close out, I will say one more thing about Lemire's storytelling, and that's simply that he is a master of pace and structure in comics. Each issue ends with something of a game changer, and so we want very much to turn the page or pick up the next issue if we're reading this month to month. And this creates a really compelling serialized drama that is remarkably bingeable. I read this whole book in one sitting, even though it kept me up past my bedtime. But it was totally worth being a little tired the next day. Well, a short episode this month, but it's a short book and not a complete story. And if you're interested in continuing the story on the podcast, well, I am too. And there's a mechanism for getting books onto the ATOS ballots on Patreon. So if you're not already a supporter, you can check that out. And of course, you'll also get access to dozens of bonus episodes. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on. And I haven't covered much about the world in this story, but I'd be really interested in talking with you about the various humanoid species and the look of the various planets that we visit. And I'd also love to know what your favorite panel is. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you want more robots and more Lovecraftian horror and more comics, well, we've got that for you. We do a lot of shows on the network, and I hope you'll check them all out. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be reading a beautifully written fairy story. It's Thomas the Rhymer by Ellen Kushner. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. <laughs>